of the armor of God. And that's a very important thing for us to understand because, you know, some, I guess we get this image sometimes of these old castles with, you know, the, 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 the metal armor. We have in the office a, 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 a small replica of that. It used to come from Pastor Sam's office, the founding pastor here. And he had it in his office and uh, it's to represent the armor of God. And now it's standing in that office. And, but, you know, we have this picture from old movies, you know, of the, the, the knight's armor, you know, and that's kind of the image we have. And, and really this is, is kind of based on that. And so we, we can read through that and think, well, you know, you know what, what's that mean to me? And, and Paul was saying something very practical here because he's explaining to them, first of all, that they were in warfare. How many of you have discovered that things don't always go the way you want them to go? You discovered that since you became a Christian, that the obstacles just did not part, the Red Sea did not just part for you, and suddenly everything in life became easy. There was no longer any opposition. Everybody smiled at you every day. Your boss loved you. He just kept giving you raises, and people never offended you anymore, and everything just went wonderfully for you, and then you woke up. (laughs) Now, in some cases, you know, once you give your life to the Lord, it's as if there's a target on your back. And once you study your Bible, you'll find that's actually true spiritually, because before you were in the enemy's camp, God's enemy. You were part of his family, his household. But when you came to Christ, you changed families. Amen? That's good. (laughs) You changed families. The Bible says in Colossians 1.13 that you were delivered out of the domain, the dominion of darkness. That's Satan's dominion, his family, his area of influence, his power. And you were transferred, not will be when you go to heaven. When you came to Christ, you were transferred out of his kingdom into the kingdom of his beloved son. That's Jesus. So you change kingdoms and the king of your kingdom is Jesus. And the Bible says that he has defeated the power of Satan. But he is seated at the right hand of God until his enemies be made his footstool. That's part of the commission of the church. And we're the church. So that means if he has an enemy, we have an enemy. Because the only reason you have an enemy is because you belong to him. Satan doesn't care about you. You're not that important. I'm not important, that important. You're important because of who you belong to and who you represent on the earth. You are a threat to him because you are part of Christ. And the power of Christ is in you. So he is going to leash what, unleash whatever he can against you to stop you. And that's why Paul writes these verses having this wonderfully powerful... uh, It's it's one of my favorite books of the Bible. In fact, it's right up there. It's probably... If I had to have one book that I would have with me on a desert island, aside from the book of how to get out, it would be the book of Ephesians because it is the complete gospel. It has everything really in there that you need. And, And it ends with starting in verse 10, having given this wonderful description of who we are, having given these this, this instructions on how we're to relate to one another and get along with one another. Now, having said all that, he starts in verse 10 and says these things. Finally, my brethren, having said all those things, be strong in the Lord and the power of His might. 
put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. We talked about the fact that in this warfare, we've looked at what the weapons are. We have the power of God on our side, and all Satan has is tricks and deceits, but he's very good at them. So we don't wrestle, verse 12 says, against flesh and blood. So there's a wrestling going on. There's a struggle going on. There's a warfare going on. So he tells us, first of all, what the weapons are. Our weapons are of God. They're powerful. First, Second Corinthians chapter 10 says they're mighty through God for the pulling down of strongholds. And his weapons, the enemy's weapons, are deceits and tricks because he has no power over you. He has power, but once you come to Christ, he no longer has power over you he has to deceive you into using the power Christ gave you against yourself. And we've learned to cooperate with him very well. And that's what we're learning how not to do. And so he tells us these things. We're not going to spend time on those because we've talked about those before. He says, you don't wrestle against flesh and blood. Your enemy is not anybody that's a person. But we wrestle against principalities and powers and rule. I want to go back there a second. That's one of the most important things you ever need to learn. Because, again, it's one of those things that we all know here. But we fall for this trick all the time. Because Satan comes against you through flesh and blood. And that's what you can see. And we tend to react to what we see or who we see. So I think that, if I just get that person out of my life, if I can, that's the, that person is the problem in my life. And that's not what the Word of God says. That's walking by sight and not by what, faith in what God says. God says, you're not fighting. Your enemy is not flesh and blood. He says, it sure looks like it. That's what it looks like. But Satan's using them. But your enemy is him. And part of his scheme is get you to fight the wrong enemy. Because if you're fighting against a person, you're fighting in your flesh. And God will not anoint that, and God will not fight on your side, because you're violating the word of God. You're stepping out of love into Satan's territory. The greatest way you can fight back against somebody that's come against you is to bless them. Not only that, it's scriptural. Jesus said, pray for those who persecute you. It gets tougher. Bless those that despitefully use you. That's not somebody that hurts you accidentally. That's somebody that sat down, stayed up all night trying to figure out how to hurt you. Intentionally, maliciously, with all premeditation and a forethought. Devise ways to get at you. And Jesus says, bless them. Ah! That's when you find out what a kind of Christian you are. That's when you find out where he stands in your life. But then it goes on and says why we should do that. So that we may be like our Father who is in heaven. That tells me that God does that. In fact, he says that he causes the sun to shine on the just and the unjust. 
He gives rain for the good and the bad. In fact, there was a time when you and I despitefully used him. Imagine what, if God got ticked off. What, what if, you know, you just got him on a bad day and he just said, that's it, I've had it with you. I'm done. I, you pushed me too far. I'm going to let you have everything. I go, oh boy. Didn't do that, did he? Instead, he turned to his right hand and told his only begotten son to come to this earth, to take on flesh, and to pay for your sins and my sins with his life. Understand, the men that nailed him to the cross and the religious hypocrites that stood by and put him there, he was giving his life for them. That you may be like your father who is in heaven. And I've found and continue to discover that the more I step into acting like God, the more I step into acting out of love, the more I stepped into blessing instead of, instead of just even harboring something, the more I step into that to become, to act more like who He's already made me to be, the more of the flow of God's blessing and the more of God's flow of His anointing flows in my life. Stop and think it makes sense. Because when you step outside of love, you step outside of Him. I don't mean He doesn't love you. I don't mean you're not going to heaven. But you step outside of how He operates. Just as we learned when you step outside of truth. We're talking about armor. And the armor's on the outside to protect you. And what we've learned is this armor is not metal, it's not mesh, it's not that stuff that our mind conjures up. It's literally putting God on. Because each one of these things are an aspect of God's character and His nature. So when you walk in truth, He is truth. When you walk in righteousness, He is righteousness. So when you act this way, when you begin to act in these qualities, you're beginning to act like Him, and that's really acting like who He is in you. So He now becomes your armor. He now becomes your defense. He now becomes your protection. He now becomes your weapon. He now becomes your deliverance. He now becomes your provision. And that's what these are. So we've looked at the first one, which is the belt of truth. That's just walking in truth, because He is truth. That means when you walk in truth, you don't defend yourself. You just say what the truth is. When you do that, He defends you. When you kind of fudge things to protect yourself, you're now stepping outside of the armor, outside of God's nature, and you're stepping into the nature of your enemy. You're stepping into the realm of His weapons, which are deceit, and lies and shading things. So when you protect yourself by spinning things, you step into his, we- into his armor. And he's your enemy. We looked at righteousness on the outside, which is living right before God. It's also not allowing condemnation to get into your heart. And then last week we began to look at the preparation of the, go- of the shoes of the gospel of peace. That's down in verse 15. And having shod, put on your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. That's a mouthful. 
And what we learned last time, I've read all kinds of commentaries on this, and I believe some of them are right on, some of them talk about it means the preparation, that means the, the get, put your shoes on so you can go and spread the gospel. And that's clearly what we're supposed to do. And there's a peace in that. One of the meanings of the word preparation is just foundation. So having been founded in peace. But as I was meditating on this and praying on it, 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 I realized what he's talking about here is in the context of armor and battle. Just like truth, the belt is, is, is relevant because you hang your weapons from it. Everything hangs from that. The breastplate is relevant because it protects your vital organs, especially your heart. And we talked a lot about that. So their feet are important when it comes to fighting, to being in kind of warfare, because it's what you stand on. And if there's something wrong with your feet, if they hurt, if there's a, if there's a stone in your shoe, and you're trying to stand and concentrate because you've got an enemy bearing down on you, and there's a f- pebble in your foot, you're distracted from focusing on your enemy. If your shoes don't fit right or you've got corns or something wrong with your feet, after a while, you can't stand solidly. And what is this armor to design so as we can do? Having done all to stand. And as we learned last week, what is it we stand on? Our feet. That's why one of my pet peeves is when someone says, please stand to your feet. What else am I going to stand to? So he's standing on our feet. So it is, it is what allows us to be solid and set and secure in the middle of a battle. And what it is, is peace. Without peace, you're distracted. Without peace in the middle of the battle, you're trying to swat a fly, you're trying to, your mind is occupied with other things, and you're trying to discern, we're going to see later on, you're trying to discern the voice of the Spirit, but when you're not at peace, it's hard to discern anything, because all you feel here is noise, and all you see is turmoil. And notice the goal here is to stand. And so peace is a vital part of being able to stand in the middle of a battle and not be defeated. That's a a Pastor (laughs) Rayism. And have your feet taken out from underneath of you. And we all know what that's like. Have any of you ever been in some kind of battle? I mean, other than the war, even then. Only three of you? Oh, then I don't need to talk about this. <laughs> I suspect many of you are going through something right now. Ever get up in the morning and you just have a nice time reading your Bible and it's just so peaceful and comfortable and you go into the day and everything comes at you? They're lined up just to get at you. And, often, and you know what they're all designed to do? To steal your peace. And we began to look last week at why that's so important. And the reason it's so important is the key of that is in the word peace in the Old Testament. The word peace in the Old Testament is the word shalom. It's a very broad word. It's used over 250 times in the Old Testament. But it doesn't just mean peace. It means wholeness. And this is what we talked about last time. And let me read to you one of the definitions of, of this word 
in the Old Testament, shalom. It means completeness, wholeness, peace, health, welfare, safety, soundness, tranquility, prosperity, perfectness, fullness, rest, harmony, and the absence of agitation and discord. It means complete together. And what we saw last week is that is God's nature. God's nature is wholeness, health, blessing. That is His nature. That's what He is. Otherwise, there are holes in Him. Otherwise, there's something missing in God, and He's not complete. But He is whole. He is complete. And everything He creates is whole. And it's complete. He made man in His image. He made him whole and complete. His will for your life is that you be whole and complete and in health and blessed in every area of your life. It's His nature. We saw when Jesus walked on the earth, He removed unwholeness where He found it. Where the, whatever it was, whether it was physical unwholeness, there was a man with a withered hand. Jesus saw him and he spoke to it and that unwhole hand became a whole like the other. He ministered emotional wholeness. He met people's needs because that's God's nature. It's all... Ra- See, in the Hebrew language does not divide concepts up. The Greek language does. In the Hebrew mind, whole is whole. And if there's something missing, it's not whole. And that's God's nature. So the first thing we looked at is peace is God and God is peace. There's three things we're going to look at where peace has to be applied in your life. First of all, the thing we understand is God's nature is peace. So that peace comes from Him. Without Him, there is no peace. I'll say that again. Without Him, there is no peace. We have pharmaceutical companies that are making all kinds of amazing profits because people don't have peace. Because they have come up with chemicals that substitute for peace. The world is filled with people addicted to things that they're caught into because they got into them trying to find peace. You know the master caught it? Peace is priceless. You don't have it. Nothing works in your life. 
because your feet have to be shod with the preparation of peace. So we were looking last week at this scriptures that told us that God, peace comes from God. Turn with me to, I alluded to this last week, to number to Isaiah 26. Familiar verse, but I want to show you how you get into peace. Verse 3, Isaiah 26, 3. You will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. So God is speaking through the prophet Isaiah saying that he will keep you. That's the King James. He will keep you. The word keep doesn't just mean hold in place. It means protect provide for the old expression you know did you earn your keep that means did you earn your food your pre- house, your your bed your household you know keeping means provide for god will keep you in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on him because he trusts in him So the way to find peace is to keep your mind focused on God. On Him and on His peace. I have found lately, it's not the first time I've ever found it, I have become more keenly aware of weapons that come against me. Whether it's things I hear from people or thoughts I have. They're all, they're not, they're not so major that you stop everything and you deal with it. They're little thoughts that begin to come at your mind. Questions. You know, what are you going to do about that? You don't have an answer for this. What about this? Oh, did you hear what they said about that? And all these little things float around in your mind if you don't answer them. And all they're designed to do is to rob you of your peace. To rob you of your peace by getting your mind on all those other things. So we learned last week that peace comes from God. Today, tonight we're seeing how we get back into that peace. We saw last week some scriptures where Jesus said, My peace I give you. See, if you are in Christ, He has already given you His peace. I'm going to say that again. Because if you don't understand that, you have this idea, I have to go get peace. No. Most of these scriptures talk about not having it taken away. You can't have something stolen from you you don't have. I'm not worried about anybody stealing my gold cufflinks. I don't have any at this point. They can't steal something I don't have. So God would not be telling you to protect your peace if He hadn't given it to you. 
Not only that, Jesus said, My peace I give you. Some of these scriptures we looked at last week, verse John 14, uh, that was um, John 14, 27. We looked at these last week. My peace I give you, not as the world do, do I give you. Let not your heart be troubled, therefore not a lot of be afraid. John 16, 33, he said, These things I've spoken to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. And we've talked to some other scriptures, but I want you to turn now, I want to show you a practical example of this in Second Chronicles chapter 20. I wasn't in my notes, I wasn't planning on doing this, but as I was praying here before the service, this came to me. Turn with me to Second Chronicles chapter 20. And here's a great example of this, a very practical example. Famous story, but oh, it's so powerful. This is a story about a king of the southern nation of Judah named Jehoshaphat. He was a righteous king, loved God, served God, made a few mistakes, but he just got in with some of the wrong people, but, but he loved God and, this, and the nation prospered under him. And this, see if this sounds like a day you've ever had. <laughs> verse chapter 20, 2 Chronicles 20, verse 1. It happened after this that the people of Moab, together with the people of Ammon and others besides them, besides the Ammonites, came to battle against Jehoshaphat. Then some came and told Jehoshaphat, saying, A great multitude is coming up against you from beyond the sea. This is often how challenges come to us. We get a report that there's enemies coming to destroy you. A great multitude is coming at you behind, beyond the sea from Syria, and they are in Hazan, Tamar, which is in Engedi. Verse 3, And Jehoshaphat feared. He's human. He gets a report that these enemies have all come together and assembled together on the plains of Engedi to come with the express purpose of destroying them. Not good news. His first reaction is fear. Fear is a weapon of Satan. Fear is a weapon of Satan. You may not be able to stop the emotion from coming. And this is true of so many things that come at you. You cannot stop them from coming. But what you do with them is critical. Just like you cannot always control the thoughts that come into your mind, but you have every right, in fact, you have a responsibility to decide what you have to do with those thoughts. Just like you can't control who knocks at your door. Unless you've got armed guards outside. But you can't control who knocks at your door. You can't control who sends you a letter. Or an email. But you have every right and every responsibility to exercise sound judgment about who you open the door to and let in your house, about what envelopes you open and read, and what emails you open and read. And we get confused about that and just think, well, whatever comes, comes. 
Whatever thoughts come, I don't have anything to do with it. And so we end up playing with the thoughts, entertaining the thoughts, feeling condemned about the thoughts, and we let them loose in our life. And the same is true with emotions. In fact, let me teach you this little tidbit. Emotions always follow thoughts. So if you control the thought, you'll control the emotion. Let me prove it to you. Suppose it's a nice evening, you just finished supper, and you and your wonderful spouse are having a moment of intense fellowship over whatever. And it's getting more and more intense. Anybody know what I'm talking about? All right. Don't look so holy. <laughs> you're worked up. And you're, 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 the anger's rising in you. And your cell phone rings. Where is that thing? And you open it up and you click whatever it is and you put it, and I'm on the other end. Good evening, I was just thinking of you. How are you doing? Oh, Pastor, we're doing great. What happened to all the emotion? I thought you can't control it. Oh, you don't understand uh, my nationality. I'm Italian. I'm Portuguese. You know, we control it in a flash. You just have to have enough incentive. And if you recognize what those thoughts are going to do, if you leave them unchallenged, you ought to have enough incentive. So here's an example of this. Jehoshaphat gets up out of bed. He's got messengers standing there saying, King, I don't know how to tell you this, but these armies are lined up to come in to destroy us. And Jehoshaphat's first reaction was, Ah! As a good king, he wouldn't have expressed it that way. But the Bible tells you, I love the Bible. It's so good, it's just real. God doesn't take these people and say, you know, they all had it together. Jehoshaphat stood up as a mighty man of faith and said, Be gone, O enemies of Ammon. Be gone, O Ammon. I will not fear. No, he feared. But notice what he did next. He feared and set himself to seek the Lord. What's the verse we just read in Isaiah 26? Thou will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is set on thee. Jehoshaphat has a choice. He can set his mind on the Ammonites and these other enemies. He can set his mind, let his mind run, oh my goodness. And you know, if you let your mind run on something like that, it's incredible what your mind used to do. I was raised in a family of hypochondriacs. I mean, my parents had every ill that you could imagine and some they hadn't thought of yet. And that got in my mind. And so I, for a long time, I had a fear of something serious going wrong in my body. And if I got a symptom of something, I did not... This is, this is really how I learned to control my thoughts. It was over that issue. I would literally, but within, a, within an hour, in my mind, I have myself pictured in the hospital 
with tubes coming out of me all over. Now, some of you may not have done it with that, but you might have done it with losing your job. You might have done it with going broke, losing your house. I mean, the one thought, and the next thing you know, you're in bankruptcy, you've lost everything, you're out on the street. And that's all happened in your mind. And I had to learn to get a hold of that because it was, it was causing things in my body that hadn't been there. And I understood enough about faith in the Word of God that if I believe that enough and say that enough, I'm going to cause it to happen and that's not, you know, I'm going to create it. So I got to do something. So I had to get in this Word and find out things about learning how to control my mind and control my thoughts. And out of that, an entire course I taught in School of Ministry, and we'll teach again, called Renewing the Mind, came out of that. It came out of real-life experiences by learning to get over that by taking this Word, studying this Word, and then applying it in my life. I'm telling you, this Word, if you get serious enough about it, and you dig into it, and you meditate on it, don't just read it, but you study it, you meditate on it, then you begin to do what it says, this Word will change you into the image of God. This word will overcome things in your life. But we don't commit enough to do it. We read it a few times, we confess a few scriptures and say, Pastor, it didn't work for me. Well, God failed in your case, I guess. This word works. I said this word works. So if it's not appears to be working, don't kiss God off. You need to find out what adjustment you need to make. Well, that was a little sidetrack, but I hope it was worth it. All right. So Jehoshaphat is a choice to make. And every time a challenge comes at you, you have a choice to make. Where are you going to look? He could have looked at the enemy, caused his war department to get together, got everybody all worked up in fear, got on the news and broadcast, oh my goodness, I don't know what we're going to do, and just spread the fear around. But instead, he feared, and then he made the choice of where to look next. Before he looked at what to do with the enemy, he looks to God to seek him. Now this requires serious determination. Because notice what he did. He set himself. Literally, it means he set his face. He set himself to seek the Lord, oh, we're not going to like this next one, and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. So Judah gathered together, that's the country. They gathered together to ask help from the Lord. Notice where they're going for their, the real army's bearing down on them. He's probably getting reports from the field. They're getting closer. They're getting closer. They're getting closer. And instead of coming up with war strategies to go out and defend themselves, they decided to stop eating and to go praying and to ask God, what should they do? Remember what time has peace. Verse 5. Then Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of the Judah in Jerusalem, in the house of the Lord, before the new court. And this is his prayer. O Lord God of our fathers, are you not God in the heavens? Do you not rule over the kingdoms of the nations? And in your hand is not the power and might, so that no one is able to stand against you. 
Are you not our God who drove the inhabitants out of this land before the people of Israel? We, don't, we haven't studied this here. Some of you have studied it with me. This is all covenant language. Our God. We're your, we, you are the God that belongs to us. And we are your people. We are the people that belong to you. They don't belong to you. We do. See, that will begin to give you peace. See, in the middle of whatever you're going through now, God hasn't abandoned you. God hasn't run away from you. But I don't feel him. Yeah, but that doesn't mean he's left you. That's why we walk by faith. He said, I will never leave you or forsake you. In Hebrews chapter 13, he says it three times. I will never, this is in the Greek, no, never, no, never leave you abandoned or utterly cast down. And in that context, if you read it, he's talking financially. That's what God says. Now, you've got a choice. You can either believe what God says or how you feel. You can either believe what God says or what you think. Jehoshaphat chose to believe what God said. With all the enemy bearing down on them, he chooses to turn to God, pour his heart out before God, and notice he's not saying, Oh God, what are you going to do? We're in trouble. Oh, if you don't rescue us. These are words of faith. They're reminding God of his promise. It's a great pattern for praying in an emergency here. He's God knows the situation. I mean, Ruth, do you think God doesn't know what you're going through? I mean, you really think God doesn't know what's going on in your life right now? You really think God doesn't have an answer? I mean, think about that a second. Do you, do you really think God's up there looking? Because we either think he's looking at us and doesn't care. <laughs> They're going through something. They need to go through this. It'll teach them something. Or we think he cares, but he's panicked like we are. I don't know what we're going to do. I mean, my goodness, I've never seen anything like this before. I've never seen anybody in this kind of mess before. What in the world are we going to do? Oh, my, what in heaven are we going to do? Excuse me. I don't know. I've never seen, oh my, nobody's ever been in a mess like that before. (laughs) I think there's a scripture in 1 Corinthians 10, 13 This says there's no temptation that's come against us that's not common to man, with which God will provide the way of escape so that you can endure it and go through it and survive. That's his promise to you, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. So when whatever you're going through right now, that's a promise God's made to you. He will not leave you. That means he's there in the middle of it. Look at Isaiah 41. You go through the valley, you go through the waters, you'll not drown. You go through the fire, you'll not even burn. Not only will your hair singe. Say, well, yeah, that's symbolic. Not to Israel, it wasn't. They went through the Red Sea, didn't they? They literally went through the Red Sea. God's serious about this, of what he'll do for you. You're his child. And the more we look to him and the more we trust in him and the more we draw near to him, the more of His peace we experience. The more you look at the disaster, the more you look at the challenge, the more you meditate on it, the more you think about it, the more you talk about it. That's the biggest mistake we make. 
You notice there's not a lot of defeat coming out of Jehoshaphat's mouth? Well, let's read the rest of what he said. This is his prayer. Verse 7. Are you not our God who drove out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and gave it to the descendants of Abraham, your friend forever? And they dwell in it and have built you a sanctuary in it for your name, which is the temple there, saying, if disaster comes upon us, sword, judgment, pestilence, or famine, we will stand before this temple and in your presence for your name in this temple and cry out to you in our affliction and you will hear and save. They'd already planned for this. That if disaster ever comes, this is what we're going to... You need to do that. We don't need to have a temple where we prepared to go hand. But, and we don't, you know, we don't have altars in that sense anymore. What an altar was, it was a physical place they established ahead of time where they would meet God. And you need to establish a point of reference. Whether it's a scripture in your Bible... Where, in the, where, where an emergency comes to you, that's what you're going, you prepared, I'm going to go back to that place, and when I go there, God's going to answer me there. Because that's what they did. They, were, they knew there was going to be challenges coming, but they were prepared ahead of time that they were going to do in the middle of that challenge. When they train pilots, and not just train them, when they check them out again, they take them for a period of time aside, and they put them in something called a simulator. And in that simulator, they practice going through emergencies. They practice losing their power. They practice what, in the middle of a landing, suddenly their landing gear doesn't go down. They practice what to do so that that pilot, if he's flying a real plane and one of those emergencies happened, he doesn't have to go, ah, I don't know what we're going to do. Find the manual. Look it up. Not only does he know instinctively what to do, but he will do it with great calm because he's rehearsed it ahead of time. He's rehearsed ahead of time. Say, well, that's not faith. I know it. It is faith. It's faith, the planning what you're going to do to turn to God to deliver you in the emergency. Because if you think faith is believing you're not going to have any challenges, that's not faith, that's foolishness. Because Jesus said, ah, in this world, you will have trouble. You didn't need to exercise faith for that. That's not a bad confession. That's the word of God. But Jesus said, fear not, I have overcome the world. There's trouble coming, but I've overcome it for you. So you need to hook into me in the trouble because in me is perfect peace. But this is teaching us that you need to prepare that ahead of time. And what you're going through right now may be a good opportunity to prepare. You getting something out of this? I am, even if you're not. Now, notice we've gone through... Uh, verse 6, verse 7, verse 8, and verse 9 of this prayer, and he hasn't told God what the problem is yet. He's reminded God of God's promise. 
he's reminded God of the stand that they've taken that in crisis they're going to trust him. In verse 10, now he gets to the problem. And now here are the people of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, whom you would not let Israel invade when they came out of the land of Egypt, but they've turned from them and did not destroy them. Here they are rewarding us by coming to throw us out of your possession, which you have given to us to inherit. Oh God, we will not ju- oh God, will you not judge them? For we have no power. Ever feel like that? We have no power against this great multitude that is coming against us. That's the first problem. Secondly, we don't know what to do. That'll steal your peace. No power? I don't know what to do. But this I do know. But our eyes, but our eyes, but our eyes are on you. We're overwhelmed by this. We have no power in our strength. We're, we're going to be wiped out if it requires our resources. And we have no strategy. No, we don't know what to do. All we know is this. It's all we know. Our eyes are on you. Thou will keep him in perfect peace whose mind, eyes are stayed on thee. Remember, he is peace. You can't steadfastly look at him and not have peace because he is peace. You can't be in his presence and not have peace because he is peace. Peace doesn't come by the circumstances changing. I'm going to say this again. Peace does not come by the circumstances changing. I'm going to say it another time. Peace does not come by the circumstances changing. Peace comes by looking away from the circumstances and setting your eyes on peace himself. Let's see what happens. Let's see the rest of the story. Verse 14. Well, verse 13. Then all Judah with their little ones, their wives and their children stood before the Lord. That means they've prayed this prayer, they've made this declaration, they're fasting, and they're just standing waiting. That's faith. You know why they're waiting? They're waiting to hear an answer. They're waiting to hear an answer. So often what we do is we throw a prayer up to God and then we go on. And we don't wait. See, when you wait to hear an answer, you're expecting there's an answer coming. James chapter 1 says that if you lack wisdom, that's what they lacked. What do we do? Ask of God. That's what they did. Who gives to all men, all men, that's the women too, all generously and will not upbraid, criticize you for asking. In other words, there's no such thing as a dumb question to God. 
You're not going to... Every question is dumb to God, if you really think about it. So God's not going to... Oh, what did they ask that for? Don't they know better than that? But here's the condition. Let him ask in faith, nothing doubting. Faith means if I ask you something, I'm going to listen for the answer. If I ask and don't listen, I'm not expecting an answer, so I'm not asking in faith. I'm just asking because I don't know what else to do. I'm asking because now I feel better because I've asked. I'm asking because I don't, you know, but I'm not expecting an answer. If you're expecting it, you'll wait for it. That doesn't mean you just silly stand still. That means your heart's open, your ears are open, you're looking for it, you're anticipating it, you're planning for it. That's what they were doing. Let's see what God's answer was. Verse 14. Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, the son of Benaniah, the son of Jael, the son of Maniah, a Levite, of the sons of Asaph, in the midst of the assembly, and he said, so this is God speaking through this man. <coughs> Excuse me. Listen, all of you of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and you, King Jehoshaphat. Thus says the Lord to you, do not be afraid, nor dismayed because of this great multitude, for the battle is not yours, but God's. Tomorrow, go down against them, and they will surely come up by the ascent of Ziz. Oh, I was hoping God would turn them away and they go home. And you will find them in the end of the brook. There's a lesson in that. Don't try to figure out how God's going to deliver you. Because the reason you're trying to figure out how is either so you can help him or so you can check up on him to see how he's doing. I'll save you a lot of trouble and frustration. Out of 30 plus years of walking with him, he's not going to tell you. In fact, I've developed this philosophy. If I come up with a way I think he's going to deliver me, he's just checked that possibility off the list. He won't use that one. So I want to give him as many options as possible so that's your business how you're going to deliver me. My business is to trust you and believe. In Moses' case, they were being bitten by snakes. Poisonous ones. Fiery serpents. That means very poisonous snakes. So Moses cries out to God. Here's God's answer. Oh, you think God's answer is to drive the snakes out? Oh, wouldn't that be great? He says, when they're bitten, (laughs) when they bite you, oh, that's not encouraging right there, is it? When they bite you, he says, Moses, make a bronze image of a snake and put it up on a pole and lift it up in the camp. Because that represents, the snake is what represents sin. And the bronze represents having been judged. That bronze serpent was a representation of Christ on the cross. In fact, Jesus refers to that in John chapter 3. Just so there's no question about it. So he's saying, what you do, you're being bitten by and I don't have time to go back into it, it really was the manifestation of their sin. 
And God's answer when they cry out was to make an image of a snake in bronze, lift it up on a pole, and he said, oh, when the snakes bite you. I don't like that. If you look up at the bronze serpent, you will live. But our eyes are on you. Thou will keep him in perfect peace, whose mind, whose eyes are stayed on thee. Tomorrow going again against them. Verse 17. You will not need to fight in this battle. Then why do I have to show up? Because God wants you to see something. Position yourself. King James says, set yourself. What are we, what's this all about, the armor? So that we can stand. Position yourself. Stand. Stand. St- oh. Stand still. I mean, the enemies, God's saying, here's what you're going to do. You're going to march down in the morning out to battle. We want time to get into it. But he told them to put the praise and worship team out front. <laughs> do we have any... It's a good time to recruit for the band and the... Con- <laughs> and he said, he said, they're going to go out to the edge of the battle. They're going out to a battlefield. Three major armies descending on them. And God's instructions when you get out there is position yourself, get in the right place, stand still. They don't have weapons. Stand, and I'm supposed to have peace? Yeah. Because our eyes are on you. And look at the next one. And see, anticipate, expect, envision the salvation of the Lord who is with you. My Bible tells me he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So whatever you're going through right now, whatever enemies have arrayed themselves against you and are shouting all manner of destruction against you and all manner of threat against you, don't put your eyes on the circumstances or your enemy and especially their threats. And whatever you do, don't repeat their threats back out loud. But instead... Put your eyes on the Lord whose battle it is. See, the reason he can't fight for more of us is we go fight our own battles. And then ask him to patch up the wounds. Stitch yourself. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord who is with you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them, for the Lord is with you. 
Say this with me. The Lord is with me. The Lord is with me. The Lord is with me. Now, if you don't know the rest of the story, they go out there. He says, now, praise and worship team. Just start singing, for the Lord is good and His mercy endures forever. For the Lord, when we get on to the next song, no, we just sing one song. For the Lord is good and His mercy endures forever. For the Lord, and while that happens, the enemy bear down in three parts. They get confused and they destroy each other. And when they're all dead, Jehoshaphat and his people go in and pick up all the spoils. The only injury any one of them would have sustained is that they accidentally cut themselves picking up some of the spoil. This is God's pattern in the midst of warfare for allowing him to be your armor and fight for you. But you have to be at peace in the middle of a storm so that God can fight for you. Because when you run out into the battle yourself, you're unprotected. I mean, this doesn't mean he doesn't go with you, but you've exposed yourself. And you don't even know what you're doing. 